My name is Jim Mullins. I'm the pastor of Theological and Vocational Formation, and it's good to be with you this morning. Um, before we jump into the Word, if you need a Bible, would you go ahead and raise your hand? We have people walking down the aisles who will give you one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. If you do have a Bible, please don't steal our Bibles. So... Uh, <laughs> Now that we've taken care of that, feel free to raise your hand and get a Bible. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series that we're going to be doing throughout the summer in the book of Psalms. Psalms, this, this, uh, these 150 collected songs and poems and, and uh, prayers that were collected uh, during the time of Babylon to teach God's people how to pray. This genre of scripture is a little different than what we've often engaged on Sunday mornings. We've often engaged epistles, which are these letters that Paul or other apostles are writing to the church, and it's instruction to the church about the gospel and how to, to live in light of the gospel. We also see um, a narrative literature, the story of the mighty acts of God as he's worked through Israel and, and the book of Acts and the book of Gospel and, and, and the Gospels, you see narrative. But what we're talking about today is not law or epistle or narrative. The Psalms is really the poetry of God's people, the prayer of God's people. And as we engage the Psalms, we ask a different question. We don't ask, what is it trying to teach? But we ask, what is it doing? What, are, what is David or the other psalmists, what are they doing? What are God's people doing as they pray? And the psalms become to us the school of prayer, teaching us as God's people how to pray and how to engage. And so as we look at Psalm 8 and the rest of the psalms throughout the summer, we're going to be looking at how do we pray in light of the psalms. We're going to go to the school of prayer and David and the other psalmists will be our professors showing us how to pray. But before we dive in, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, and I'm actually going to have a discussion question that I want to toss out to you to discuss with a few people around you, like three or four people around you, or two or three. Um, and just take a few minutes, and here's the question that you're going to ask. You're going to ask the question of, what do you remember about your childhood best friend? And, and, and start thinking about the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch that would be involved with hanging out with this person. So go ahead and discuss that with a few people around you, and then I'm going to pull us together in about a minute or two. Okay, let's, let's take a few moments to, to wrap it up. All right. Let's pull it together, people. <laughs> All right. 
Well, it was interesting. I, I took this as an experiment to, to watch your reaction. And after you all got over the fact that your friend smells funny or you made a joke about that, uh, you, you start, you, memories started flooding into your mind. And there were memories uh, connected to hanging out with this person uh, to where you remember sights, smells, a, a whole array of things. If I were to answer the question, I'd answer it this way. My, 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 my closest childhood friend uh, when I was a kid and today is a guy named Roy who randomly showed up today. He's over there in the orange shirt. He hates attention, so you're going to just look at him awkwardly. Um, but, but what I remember from hanging out with him is a few things. I remember that certain tastes, like we would go to Elmer's and eat the mini chimneys uh, down in Chandler. And anytime I, I eat a mini chimney, I remember uh, our youth. I remember at his house, he had a couch that was broken in the perfect way that made it the most comfortable couch the world could imagine. You just sink right into it. I remember the feeling of Bermuda grass as we played uh, football for many years and uh, as I was doing the hard work of blocking for him and he was scoring touchdowns, you would feel that rough Bermuda grass making your skin itch. And I mean, this, Bermuda grass is awful, right? Like it's just Satan's grass, but, and, and it would be so scratchy. Um, I also remember one time, um, uh, this, is, this is pretty funny, we... Uh, we decided that we were going to go to a cemetery in the middle of the night. It must have been like midnight or something like that. And we went to a cemetery, and we were getting creeped out as we were walking around the cemetery. And this guy decided to hit the panic button on his car alarm <laughs> just, to, just to freak people out. Well, of the four of us who went, two of the people ended up peeing their pants. <laughs> so as we drove back, the smell of shame was in the car. But I'm sure all of us could tell stories about childhood friendships and the sights and sounds and smells that were involved with those relationships. And every human relationship that you have has that. Every, uh, this is the way that we as humans engage with the world, with sight, with sound, with, with, uh, with what we hear, with what we taste, with what we smell. We are multi-sensory people. And this is a, a part of our relationship with God. Even when people have an impairment like sight or hearing, uh, the, one of their other senses gets stronger. So, and by the way, I know what you're thinking. Some of you smart folks say, well, they don't have five senses anymore. They've added 15 and it's all like that. Look, when I was a kid, we had five senses. They already took Pluto from us. We're sticking with five senses today, all right? But let me, let me, think of, let me, let me just tell you, when I ask this same question about a person's relationship with God, what are the sights, the sounds, the smells involved with your relationship with God? I asked many people this week, and they said that they couldn't really think of many. They couldn't think of relating to God with the fullness of, of human senses. And, and, and when I asked them about their prayer life, they, they expressed a sense of struggle, of guilt, saying, I know I should pray, uh, but, but I don't. I don't have a rich prayer life. Uh, if you're talking about prayer this Sunday, I'm going to happen to go to Sedona. Uh, and they struggle to pray. You know, getting at this question, I asked uh, a bunch of people uh, over text message this week, if you're one of them, you, your stuff might go public right here. But I asked them, uh, what, if they could compare their prayer life to the characteristics of any famous person, who would it be? 
one person said Tim Duncan because uh, you, you know it's boring, but you also know it's good, right? <laughs> one person said Eli Manning because their prayer life is so inconsistent. Uh, an, uh, another person said Kanye West because my prayer life is usually just all about myself. <laughs> but we struggle to pray if we would admit that we as evangelical folks, we know we should pray, but we struggle. And I think one of the problems is not your, your lack of discipline or that you don't get the gospel enough or any number of these reasons, but one of the problems why we don't pray, one of our big obstacles, is that we do not pray like humans. We pray like computers. What does a computer do? A computer is just transferring information silently to some distant server that sends some information back. And when we imagine prayer, we imagine that that's what we're doing many times. Let me show you a picture. When we pray, most of us will imagine, when, when, when we imagine someone praying, we will imagine someone doing something like that. Eyes closed, hands folded, bowed, slouched, trying to block out all the sounds and the places and, and all of the senses. This is praying like a computer. This is not praying with the fullness of human senses, with our eyes open and our ears open and our full senses engaged. And you know what? That prayer posture, it's fine, it's good, but you don't find that in the Bible anywhere. That was invented by some mom who wanted to, their kid to stop messing around with stuff, so they told him, this is how God wants you to pray, like fold your hands and close your eyes. But you don't see this in Scripture. In Scripture, from beginning to end, as the people of God relate to their God, they relate to him with a fully sensory experience. They engage him with all of their senses. Let me walk you through some of the way that that plays out in Scripture. Take the sense of taste. Israel would break up their year into these seven feasts where they would make delectable food and, and, and it would represent uh, the memory of God's great deeds. They would remember him as they tasted good food. And even Jesus, the one thing he gave for us to do as we worship him and, and relate to him, is he gave us bread and wine of communion so that we remember his broken body and spilt blood through the taste buds. Consider the sense of smell. The tabernacle in the Old Testament had very specific instructions about the incense that would be used so that whenever you were near it, you would smell a smell that would give you the connotation of holiness. We see in the New Testament Mary Magdalene breaking the perfume, this pungent perfume, expensive to wash Jesus' feet as she worships him. And then sight. God's people would come across the temple, and the temple was made not just as a functional building, but it was beauty, beautiful, and it, had, it was made with grandeur so that when they looked at it, it would remind them of the greatness of the God that they worshiped. And if you went into the temple and you saw the sacrifices you would see a spotless white lamb with blood dripping and staining its wool as it was sacrificed to show you the weight of sin. Consider sound. 
Throughout the Psalms, what you see is not just stagnant prayers, but prayers that were to be prayed with music and instruments like we're doing here. And then there was the public reading of Scripture. And then finally, touch. In the Old Testament, when people were were going to repent or to mourn something horrible that had happened, they would put on these clothes made of sackcloth, this material that was uncomfortable, and they would sit in ashes. And, And sitting in that uncomfortable posture would be a physical reminder, engaging the sense of touch, saying, what is happening is not good. And then finally, like, consider baptism. The way that we as a church worship God and celebrate our union with Christ is by being submerged in the water and having it cover all of our skin and coming out and having the water drip off of us, reminding us of the cleansing that comes from the gospel. The way God's people were meant to engage with the world is with the senses he gave us. And the way that we were meant to worship him is with the senses he gave us. And it's all throughout Scripture. And in Psalm 8, which we read today, we can, we can follow David's example, who isn't sitting in some corner blocking out the world, but is praying these robust all-of-life prayers and seeing the majesty of God, his greatness in every corner of the earth, every, every, uh, every industry, every nation, Anywhere he goes, he has the eyes to see the greatness and the majesty of God. So let's, let's take a look at this passage. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8, and we're going to look at verse 1. See, what we see, uh, let me just give the outline of what this, uh, was what's happening in this psalm. We see the big idea of this psalm is that David is seeing and praising the majesty of God in all of life. And we, we get this from the fact that the first and the last verse of this psalm are the same words. It's the same sentence, which is, um, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then what you see is David looking at three different places, three different images in the world that cause him to, to see a glimpse of what God's like. And in, in those places, he's reminded of who God is, and it causes him to praise. He looks at three different places. His prayer life includes the home, vacation, and work. Not some distant corner, but engaged in the world. And everything he sees is causing him to praise God. And, and what my hope is, my prayer is, as we work through this psalm, is to hear God's invitation to behold him, to behold his righteousness, his holiness, his kindness, his goodness, his nearness, his, his vastness, all the attributes of who he is, to, to, to be invited to see those being magnified in the various good, true, and beautiful things in the world. And that as we enjoy those things, we enjoy them with sincerity and thankfulness. But those things are signs that point us to the God who's greater and who created those things. It's an invitation to a robust prayer life with the full engagement of your senses and the full engagement with all of life. So let's start with that first and that last verse, that main sentence in here. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Now, at first glance, it would seem like uh, David is repeating himself, O Lord, our Lord. And, but those two words for Lord, it's translated into English as Lord, but those are actually two separate words. The first word is the word Yahweh. It was, it was the unique covenant name that God had revealed to Israel. And, and it was such a holy name that Israelites wouldn't even dare to speak it. They, would, they, they wouldn't even dare to say those, those very words. It was holy. It was precious. And it would, it would remind them of the mighty acts of God redeeming them out of Egypt and redeeming them and making them his. It was a sense of God's intimate and covenant relationship with the community of Israel and with his people. But then the second, our Lord, the second time it uses the word Lord, it's the word Adonai, which conveys the sense of a master, of, of the one who's the supreme Lord over the whole earth and the whole creation and the whole cosmos. And so even in the first two words, you get a sense of David's relationship with God that he both senses the nearness and the covenant and the real intimate relationship with God, yet he knows that God is great and vast and beyond his comprehension, that God is closer to him than, than his own family members, but is greater and mightier than that giant that he once faced of being Goliath. That God is vast and huge and enormous and that you come to him with reverence and trembling. And so it says, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word majestic in the Hebrew is adir. The word carries the connotation of, uh, of God's vastness and his greatness. In, in the Bible, it's used to describe the 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 breadth and the power of the sea. You can imagine like a tsunami. I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean and the, the waves hit hard. There is nothing you can do. Those waves are just carrying you because they are vast and they are stronger than you. And this is what it's communicating about God. It's, it's awe. It strikes you with awe when you see it. It's amazing. If you live in Tempe or if you live in Phoenix, if you're near the airport at all, there's a 747 that takes off like every Thursday afternoon. And as it's taking off, you, you can feel it in your bones. Your windows shake. Your teeth shake. And this is the connotation of that word, a deer, that when you come across a God so incredible that his pure vastness and beauty and strength shakes you to your core. And that is what what David is experiencing as he beholds God. And then we get to the word name. How, how majestic is your name in all of the earth? Now, name is interesting because in the, in the Bible and in a lot of other cultures, name carries a lot more weight. Uh, it has a lot more, it's more of a descriptive act to name somebody. Um, you, you can think about today, really, for the most part, when I hear people when they're naming their children, and this isn't wrong, the sole goal in naming them is picking a name that will not get them beat up at some point in life. And that's about as far as it goes. Or maybe you get named after a father. Or maybe if you're a hipster, you want to name them like Hank or Barry or something like that. Or, or, or Henry or some like older name. But regardless, the naming that we have today is not like the naming that they had in the Old Testament. The naming that they had at that point, this name carried the connotation of what your character and reputation is like. So when it says that, your, his, that the name of God was majestic in all the earth, it's not saying that like 
wow, you've got a really cool name. Everyone in the earth likes that. But it's saying that your character and who you are is so unique that there can never be a God that can be compared to you and your immenseness and beauty and nearness and goodness and all of your attributes. That behind every good and true beautiful thing in the world, there is ultimately you and your signature. God, you are the one who's supreme, greater than all other things. But then it's interesting. This passage does not say how majestic is your name in the temple or how majestic is the name just in Israel. But it says, how majestic is your name in all the earth, in the full expanse of the earth, every continent, every industry, every relationship. God is manifesting his glory and greatness through the good, the true, and the beautiful things that we see and we encounter and inviting us to see him. And even in the broken, messed up things about the world, there is an echo of that not being the way it's supposed to be and a God who is beyond that who will one day make it right. That that David, in his prayer life, his prayer life is not limited to just this small little corner of his house or just the temple, but it's everywhere he steps his foot. And we are invited into a prayer life like that. So, So that's David. That's him praying, seeing the glory of God in every seemingly mundane thing. But then he goes and looks in these three different places. He has these three images in this psalm that cause him to praise God. The home, vacation, and work. So let's look at verse 2, where, where David sees the majesty of God in the home. So he's, in verse 2 it says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, when we look at that, I know that many of you Marvel fans were like, oh, it talks about the Avengers in the Bible. Um, I saw you Comic-Con folks around here last week. But it doesn't. That's not X-Men or anything like that. But if you're looking at that, it it might seem a little bit strange because uh, babies don't carry the connotation of strength. God establishing strength out of the mouth of babies. If you, if you looked at this and you didn't know what was going on, you might think that God was like training up these little ninja babies to go beat up the Philistines or like uh, to go beat up the Avengers, whoever they are, or something like that. But what is happening here is that David, who was a father, who had many children and knew what it was like to hold a vulnerable baby, is drawing upon his experience with babies and being reminded of the weakness and the smallness of God's people of Israel. And perhaps even his own smallness, that he was the smallest and weakest of all of the brothers. And then he's remembering the fact that God, in the midst of all of these very powerful nations, has protected and faithfully revealed himself to this tiny nation this tiny nothing nation, and has used him as this tiny nothing king. And and you don't see David just praying these ethereal prayers, but he's engaging in the sights and sounds of a baby, and it's causing him to reflect on who God is and how God has been faithful to Israel. And so let me ask you this. As you spend time in your home, probably the, the main place where you spend most of your time other than maybe work, but, but if you sleep at all, you're in your home. So home, home wins. You're spending more time there. 
So much of what we see there, we think of it as this mundane, as this, these small things that we want to get past so that we can get to the main stuff. But that is wrong. The glory and majesty of God is hidden under every toy, of, under every placemat, in, in every living room, if we will open our eyes and look. Consider this. Consider the time that you've seen your spouse wake up in the middle of the night and you hear your child throwing up and your spouse goes in there and all night long loses sleep and comforts the child throughout the night as that child is sick, knowing that your spouse is going to get sick because they're getting all this nastiness all over them. They're going to get sick by holding that child and taking, taking on what was hap- the, the pain and, and the, the, the illness that was in that child. And you can appreciate your spouse for that, and we should. We should say thank you. But that should be a reflection to us of the great God who came near to us and held us and absorbed all of our sin. In the home is, is something tangible to behold the glory of God and to praise him. Consider a diaper. <laughs> with every time you open up a diaper and see that nastiness there and you can barely contain yourself which by the way I cannot contain myself when I see a diaper I almost like die because of how nasty it is um, when you look and you're changing that diaper knowing that every day we shovel just as much of that stuff to God in our sin and he doesn't disregard us but as a father comes near to us Consider even the pain of home life. You know, my dad was not around a lot growing up, and there are points in life that I, I miss that. I long for that. I, I wish that my, my uh, daughter would have a, a closer relationship with her grandpa, and even the pain of that is an echo of the God who is the father to the fatherless and will one day make everything right. But instead of just looking at these things in our home as mundane, look deeper, be mindful, engage your eyes, and be like David who can see in the vulnerability of a baby the protection and the nearness of God. But then we see David, he, he goes on vacation. Well, we don't actually know like if he goes on vacation. I'm taking a little bit of liberty here. But he's definitely taking time to stop and to reflect and David's clearly not going on vacation like we think. You know, like he's not like in Lake Havasu, water skiing or anything like that. But what David is doing is David is the king of Israel. Imagine the president. Like a lot of things are on your to-do list, but he takes the time to stop, to rest, and to reflect, and to actually write a song to God. But what, where did, what does he do? We know that David at least goes outside and takes a look at nature and he starts beholding the, st- the stars. It says this in Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4. It says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David stops and he rests and he takes a break and he goes outdoors and he beholds the majesty of God in the physical creation of nature. He's looking up at the stars and saying, I I don't comprehend all that's happening out there. But here's what I know. I know that it is the work of your fingers 
that the beauty that I see in the sunset and in the stars and in the moon and in all of those sorts of things, that you are the great artist who has crafted those things. And if you are, are caught up in work so big and so vast, how is it that you could come to me and be my God? So transcendent, yet you are so imminent. And he's, he's dumbfounded. He's awestruck. He's like, what is man? Who am I? Who are we as these small, puny people, that you would reveal yourself to us and to be our God. And this is what David's doing here in the psalm, and we need to do that as well. It is healthy for our soul to feel small and to go out into nature and to behold God's handiwork, the things he crafted with his fingers. I know that many of us are actually, we're planning on this. We're planning on going on vacation and going outdoors this summer. And as you do, I highly encourage you to thoroughly enjoy it, but also take the time to be mindful of the God behind it who is showing you his glory with every good thing you see. Go stand next to the Grand Canyon and behold your smallness in the midst of God's greatness. And by the way, I know that there are some Arizona people who have never been to the Grand Canyon before. Shame on you. This is, this is the summer. You're going, you're going to the Grand Canyon. You're going to check it out. But if you go to Sedona and you look at the red rocks, enjoy them. But take the time to praise the artist who made the color red. And through a whole orchestration of natural events is crafting those rocks to be delightful. As you go to, the, to Pine Top, this is where we like to go, and it rains every afternoon, and you see vegetation and life being provided for, let that remind you of the God who provides for you as well and who's provided for your life. As you hike in the desert, which I know many of you guys do, and you never invite me, but that's fine. I see it on Facebook. <laughs> you go hiking in the desert. Take the time to reflect and to be in awe of God. To be in awe of the God who allows life to be sustained in the midst of a harsh place and is the same God who has sustained your life in the hardest times of your life. As you feel the warmth of the sun, which is so big and vast that you can't even look at it directly, it's so great that 1.3 million earths could fit inside the sun. Take time to reflect that that sun isn't even a cotton ball to God. It is nothing to him. He's the creator of it. And what is so immense to us is nothing to God, but God wields that incredible sun through the process of photosynthesis to de deliver you a delectable treat called a tomato. And as you sink your teeth into some of these summer tomatoes or basil, remember the God who is extending that good gift and providing for you and making the world delectable for you. Look under a microscope. Take some time with your kids and, and see the nanomajesty of God that's, that's, that's reflected in the complexity of an entire city, of, of more complexity than an entire city on a single cell. Get out, go hike, and behold God in creation. That is one of the ways that we can engage the fullness of our senses in our prayer life like David. But then we see... David praying at work. See, at, at Redemption, we talk a lot about all of life is all for Jesus. 
And, and I love it. We are actually becoming a church that a lot of people are referring to uh, about people having a rich theology of work. And this is something that many people in our church care about. We know that work is good and it glorifies God. But David takes it a step further. And this is what I really want us to do. I'm praying for this, that we would take it a step further. Yes, all of life is all for Jesus. But also, all of life reflects the glory of Jesus. And as we work for the glory of God and engage in those processes, let that be an occasion for prayer and for beholding God's greatness and worshiping him. So we see this in Psalm 8, verse 5 through 8. 5 through 8, that's what we're going to look at. It says, and yet you have made him, he's, talking, he's answering the question of what is man that you're mindful of him. And then in verse 5 he says, and yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, what's interesting here is David is actually answering the question of what is man that you're mindful of him? Because he's getting caught up in the vastness of the stars and saying, we are puny as humans. But then he starts reflecting on the biblical story and going back to Genesis. The, the language of dominion and subduing and having all things under your feet and the various animals, this is all language going back to Genesis 1 and 2 the purpose for which God created humanity and, and, and uh, the unique image-bearing role that they play in the world. L- listen to Genesis 1 and 2 and see, or Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and hear the similarities of language with this psalm. It says in verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's almost the same sort of language. And you almost think that David is now starting to write a song about the greatness of work and the unique glory of humanity. I feel uncomfortable saying the language glory of humanity, but it's right here in the scriptures. It says that humans were crowned with glory and honor, that humans are unique amidst all of the creation, and that we can work with our hands and draw the potential out of the world, and it is good. And when you start engaging the incredible things that humans have created, Sometimes we feel guilty when you watch a good movie or you see beautiful art or you enjoy an air conditioner and you think that's not a spiritual thing. But your enjoyment of it, you don't enjoy it enough. You need to go deeper in it and see the God who's behind it. Those things are right to be enjoyed because God put us in the world to make those things, to cultivate those things, to work those things. Consider this. This, you can't see it. But this is a few ounces of sand. Earlier today, I had Will Vakirovich, you know him, he was up here earlier. I had him go uh, grab a few, the sand from a, a local park. Um, so if your kid gets hurt because there's not sand on the playground, that's his fault. Um, but consider sand. 
Even a small child sitting on the beach making a sandcastle, if you really look at what's going on, it's more amazing than any other aspect of creation in the world. You've never seen a zebra make a sandcastle. You've never seen a cricket like write, I love you, in the, in the sand. You've never seen any aspect of God's creation make something as incredible as a sandcastle. And then that very child, when that child grows up, goes and works at Intel or something like that. I don't know what these engineer people do. And they take something as trivial and small as sand and they make silicon and they make this thing that's able to uh, power computers and phones and, and, and be this conductive, you know, technical jargon, right? But who has a phone right now? Hold it up. Who has a computer? They make from sand these very things that are controlling uh, the emails that we send to loved ones and, uh, and the airplanes and security systems and things like that. Human beings with sand in their hands can make something as incredible as that. And in, we enjoy that. We should be in awe of that. But furthermore, we should be in awe of the God behind that. Sand in the hand of God is a different story. He scoops up the dirt of the ground and breathes life into it and makes out of nothing the human beings who make the silicon and the sandcastles and things like that. So as you behold the grandeur and the glory of God in the world, see his character. When a beautiful architecture, see the artistry of God. The power of a 747, see and praise the power of God. As you work, be sure to take time throughout your day to reflect on all that is happening around you and how majestic it is and see the majesty of God behind that. Whether it's humans making tacos or self-driving cars or smoothies or footballs, telescopes or airplanes, be crushed by how amazing it is and how amazing the God is behind it. We are a people at this church who have a good theology of work, but that hasn't sunken into our prayer life, and it should be so. Let me, let me tell you what it would look like to do a little drive around the city and see the majesty of God and praise him. Just imagine for a moment that you're driving around the city. Imagine that you pass by high schools like McClintock and Tempe and Corona del Sol. Don't just rush by, but be reminded of the God who's the source, the ultimate source of knowledge, who reveals himself in the handiwork of the well-ordered worlds of science and math, who makes himself known by entering the textbooks, the history textbooks, through the Incarnation. Walk through the halls of Tempe St. Luke's Hospital and with every nurse and doctor that, that walks by and is helping someone and making them better, let that remind you of the great physician who will one day do away with things like cancer and car accidents and even the common cold. As you're, as you're driving around and you see the light rail passing through Lemon Street and Terrace and you roll down your windows in the international neighborhoods and, and see the international restaurants and you get the strong sense of curry in your nose, 
Let that, let that, the, the work of those cooks lead you to praise God, the one who will one day gather all nations for a great feast and is himself the bread that satisfies the soul. Walk through ASU, the largest university in the country, and see people being trained in innovation and sustainability and honor their work. Or if it's you, engage in that work and enjoy it. But let that reflect the God who's the ultimate creator and sustainer of the world. See Jesus sleeping on a bench at Daly Park. And let that remind you of the day when there will be no more home people without homes who have to sleep on hot concrete. That there's a God who's preparing a home for those who are currently in air condition and those who are currently on the concrete to live together one day. And with each person that serves them and helps them get out of that situation, see the God who's preparing a place for us. Walk down downtown Tempe and see the unique architecture of City Hall, the upside-down pyramid, and be reminded of Jesus' upside-down kingdom whose rule and justice will one day make everything right. I want to invite you to follow in the footsteps of David and to open your eyes and your ears and to take in the majesty of God in the world and let that be the fuel and the kindling for your prayer life. For, as far as the sermon goes, I'm pretty much done. But I want to end in this way. I want to do something unique and to take uh, a moment to just walk you through some tangible prayer practices that I've engaged in in my life or a few others around here have engaged in just to help cultivate your imagination for what this could look like for you. So let's go ahead and throw them up there. Number one is iPhone prayer. We've already established the fact that you have iPhones, right? Even if you look in a room uh, where people are like waiting or something, you'll see everybody in this position, right? Looking at their iPhones. It already looks like that lame prayer position that we talked about in the beginning. Might as well use it to pray, right? But, but one way you can engage it is um, through, if you get on Facebook. Every time I get on Facebook, I try to find at least one person to pray for. What a great prayer list. People are posting their status updates and what's going on in their life. Probably a little sanitized, but you can get the sense of what's, what's going on with them, and you can just pray for one person every time you open up um, Facebook and then just send them a message of encouragement. Uh, also, you read your news on the phone. We've become desensitized to the news. How is it that you can hear about a shooting and death in Fallujah and Fallujah uh, and the Ebola virus and you're just eating popcorn, just chilling? Let that be a prayer guide. Don't let the news pass without spending some time praying. I was doing this this morning when we heard about the shooting in Orlando and we, 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 we don't know exactly what the right response is or what, what we should have done this morning. But one thing I know is that as we encounter news like that, we need to be people who lament and to pray. But read the news with a heart of prayer. But even what you can do as a practice is rewrite the headlines. Rewrite them according to what they will be when Jesus returns. That, that instead of a, a bomb going off in, in Fallujah, you could say a barbecue happened in Fallujah. But that's what it'll be like when Jesus returns. And let, let your engagement with your phone lead you into that. Another tangible thing with the, the, the phone is uh, we're very visual people, and you have a camera on your phone. 
Take pictures of people and places that remind you how to pray and put a little folder uh, in your phone with those pictures and just a couple times a day, flip through them and let it remind you to pray. Another thing I would highly encourage many of us to do is to establish a prayer walk or a prayer drive. That you're getting out into the world and walking around and engaging your senses and let that lead you into prayer. Uh, One of the, you know, find a park that's beautiful and use that as your time to praise God and thank him. But then walk around and once you hit that restaurant and you have that rich smell, let that remind you of the goodness of the gospel and the great feast that God extends to you through Jesus. Also, pray for your neighbors as you pass by. Uh, Go ahead and throw up the dumpster. One of my favorite places to pray is a dumpster. Not in the dumpster, but near the dumpster. I end my prayer walk by going next to the dumpster and confessing my sin and letting the smells of rotting food and diapers and all kinds of things remind me of the nastiness of my sin and confessing that to God. And then I immediately go inside and I take a shower and as the water washes over me, I refresh myself in the gospel that God has forgiven me and cleansed me of that nastiness. But engage the senses in your prayer life like that. Uh, You can also drive through neighborhoods where there's a lot of suffering. Or you could do like Will does. He goes to areas where there's a lot of graffiti uh, art, like a lot of street art, and he lets that uh, fuel his prayers. Another one that that I've done before is a prayer garden where you plant plant certain plants that are associated with God's characteristics, uh, attributes, his various attributes. So every time you sink your teeth into a tomato, you are reminded of God's provision. Or praying for certain people that are connected to the the plants that you you plant there. One of the things that I do is uh, when I'm pulling pulling weeds, that's the time where I either confess sin or I wrestle with God over these big, tough issues of life that I can't, that are like these huge issues that I'm just coming to him with. And as your hand grabs that, that ridiculous Bermuda grass and you're trying to pull it out, let that represent the place of your heart as you're struggling to, to overcome s- some sin with the gospel or you're praying for something to break through in someone's life. Another important thing is praying in significant places. We don't do this enough. We think that place doesn't matter when it comes to prayer, but our places, the places that we indwell, greatly affect us. So one way that we did this is, um, you can go ahead and throw up the the image here. Um, A few of the residents and I, last year when we were in Memphis, we went out to the place where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And we read through scripture, we read through lamentations, and we cried out to God and, and repented and lamented about the, uh, the, the racial injustices that are happening in this country and the pain that exists in this country. And we went to this physical place where we could be reminded of what's happening here, and we let that fuel our prayers. But on another uh, account, we could, one place to go is the a museum. Walk through the Tempe Historical Museum as a way of praying for your city. Or the library, you know? The library is filled with all this knowledge about God's world, and it's a great way to just grab a few books, read about architecture, and praise God, right? Um, But what are those significant places for you? Probably the most significant one for me is this basketball court I went to uh, when I was a kid. I used to go to this basketball court all the time. And 
I would play basketball there, and that basket, when I was playing basketball there, I was going through some of the most painful things that you could possibly imagine with, with our family and just, just deep pain. But as I reflect back on those times, I see that God was so present, protecting us and preserving us, and even drawing many of us to Christ and healing us. And so whenever I'm discouraged or I don't see the activity of God in my life, I go back to that place and I just shoot hoops and cry out to God and thank him for his presence in the midst of that pain. And then uh, finally, these, uh, you can respond to movies, music, and art. These things that you thoroughly enjoy and that, that, that fill you with either wonder about the world or horror about the state of the world. When you watch Breaking Bad and it makes you feel all nasty inside, when you watch Shawshank Redemption, sit there and follow those emotions into prayer because they're tapping into the realities of human existence. Respond in prayer. Or when you see LeBron James do a reverse dunk on somebody, let that see the, the greatness of God and remind you of it. And then finally, I'm just going to end with this. Pray with food. Engage your food in prayer. Uh, one of the things that we do as a family is that we will cook meals of countries in the world where there's a lot of suffering and pain. And as we eat the meal, we'll take some time to pray for those countries and to thank God for the healing that he will one day bring to those countries. And, and ultimately, this is what we do now. We're going to worship Jesus through food. The one thing he gave us to do every week is to take communion, to take the bread representing his broken body and to remember what he has done for us, to remember that his body was broken on our behalf, and to dip it into the wine and juice to remember his blood that was shed on our behalf, the new covenant that he's welcomed us into. So we're going to respond now, and I just want to let you know that today we're upgrading our, um, our bread. I've got us some nice Middle Eastern bread, and the reason why I got this for us is that I want you to experience the breaking, the tearing of the bread as you grab it. And use that to remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my friends here in this room. I thank you that you have made us human. And that you have made us human with eyes and ears and, and, and uh, um, a sense of taste. And, and Lord, we ask that we would be able to engage you with the fullness of who we are in the fullness of life. And I pray, God, for those who feel uh, that, that their prayer life is, is, is boring and mundane, that they would see the thrilling God who created every aspect of the world and everything they enjoy. God, give them eyes to see it. Give us eyes to see you to see your majesty in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.